theyeshiva.net. There is a um, famous statement that the rabbis are sages, the Chazal make, in Gemara and Tractate Tainus, Masechus Tainus, Dav Chavtes, page 29 in Tainus. The Mishnah says that five great calamities occurred to the Jewish people on the ninth day of Av, Tisha B'Av, which now begins the era of the period of the nine days. And one of them is, B'Tisha B'Av, Nigzer Alaviseinu Shalayikonsu La'aretz. On the ninth day of Av was the decree on our fathers, our forefathers, not to enter into the promised land. Pasuk says that Moshe sent the spies in Parashashlach to scout the land. They were there for 40 days and they returned and they dissuaded the entire nation from entering into the land. The story is well known. The Pasuk says that Vatisa kol ha'eda vayitnu eskailam vayifku ha'am balayla ha'hu the whole community raised their voice and broke out into sobs, weeping profusely on that night. That night. So Rabbi said in the name of Rabbi Yechina that it was Tishabav. That night was the ninth day or night of the Hebrew month of Av. Moshe Rabbeinu sent the Miraglam on the 29th day of Sivan, Chavtes Sivan. They spent 40 days surveying, visiting, spying on the country. They returned back to the desert 40 days later, and they create mass hysteria. The people are weeping, they are sad, they're broken, they're devastated. And they basically say that uh, we will all die. Why did you take us out of Egypt to die? So Rabbi Yechanan said that night was Tisha B'av. Hashem said to them, Atem bechisem Meaning, you have you have wept, you have cried in vain. Your your crying, your tears were bechinam. What do we mean bechinam? Bechinam means they were in vain. There was no real reason for it, and therefore, because you wept in vain, I will establish this day as a day of weeping for generations. I am establishing this day as a day of weeping for generations. Indeed, that day, the ninth of Av, that day when the Jews wept the first time in the desert as a result of the report and the fear and the dread that the spies inculcated in them has become a day of tears because of the calamities that occurred on that day throughout history. So Jews have been crying on that day since. Yet, when you think about it, this is, I guess, a statement probably many people in this room have heard, maybe when you learned Chumash or when you learned about Tisha B'Av, the famous statement, you cried in vain, but you will indeed cry one day. You will indeed cry generations on this day. When you think about this, however, let me ask you, what is the emotion that comes up in you 
if your mother would speak to you this way, or your father would speak to you this way, or your spouse would speak to you this way. What? <laughs> Revenge? Okay. That's benign. You thought you were being like... Uh, you're being benign. You could say what you're really feeling. It's fine. But you, you're a good girl. You were trained well. Thanks. Anybody else? Injustice, rebelliousness, okay. Anybody else? Just a natural emotion that comes up, it's fine. Anger, anger, okay. Vengeance, okay. Anything else in the back? Fear, okay, fear. Do you want to discuss every emotion? I mean, It seems at first glance that there's an unfairness in the statement. It seems unfair. Let's say a child is crying in vain, which happens often. <laughs> They're crying. Why are they crying? They decided to cry. Maybe it's a, a fear that is unfounded. It should have not been there. Okay. So what do you tell this child? Because you're crying in vain, let me take out a belt. Let me beat you. So now you'll have a reason to cry. Okay. Genius. What type of response is that? So he or she is crying in vain. There's a reason for it. They need to be rehabilitated or heal from that condition, from that state of uh, living in an illusion living in perceived fear and dread that is unfounded, a lack of appreciation, a lack of faith, a lack of gratitude, a lack of awareness. Whatever the Jewish people were experiencing at that time with ten spies could really derail their entire destiny, derail them from their course, squeeze out the vitality and the life of their future promise, which is what happened. What is the nature of this response? Is this an educational response? Is this a pedagogical response? If you watched a principal do this to students in a school, you would come home and tell your husband what about this principal? If the kids start complaining, they go on a trip, right? And they complain about lunch peanut butter and jelly instead of salami. Remember those days? And they're complaining and complaining. It's horrible. We're going to starve to death. We're all going to be dehydrated. We're not going to come home. So the one running the trip, the teacher, the principal that counts, says, okay, you're crying for no reason. But therefore, I'm going to make you cry for a reason. For example, we won't have food for two days. You'll stay here for the next 40 years. The bus will break down and we'll sleep outdoors. Or whatever it is. It's pouring rain, we won't go indoors. What would you say about this principal? What would you say about this head counselor? I, I don't get it. There may be something to correct. Because you cried in vain, therefore I'll make sure that forever you cry on this day for generations. Do you know why I'm elaborating on the question? Anybody knows? 
I'll tell you why I'm elaborating on the question. I'm elaborating on the question because I want you in your own lives to examine the emotions that you experience when you hear these types of statements by the Chazal or when you read these types of psukim. A lot of our natural emotions have been repressed out of fear that we're going to be feeling the wrong thing. And feeling the wrong thing or saying the wrong thing can have very negative results. Which means that our relationship with God is numb, it's dead, it's lifeless, because a lot of our emotions had to be cut out in order to be able to feel a relationship. So it's important sometimes to revisit these things and try to put it into perhaps a deeper context which will allow us to develop a much more mature relationship. So when we come to this type of statement, we should stop and ask, what is this? You lost it? You're trying to take revenge? This does not seem as something fear, as something just. I made a mistake, I made a mistake. You want to penalize, penalize. You want to rehabilitate, rehabilitate. You want to educate, educate. But what's this midah, you cried in vain? I'm going to make you cry for real. It doesn't seem that the act is commensurate with the punishment. Somebody is crying over delusional misery. That's why I take revenge and I make you suffer real misery. Why would the vain tears warrant such a punishment? You're crying in vain. That's the worst thing. The answer, of course, is this wasn't a punishment. He's not describing any punishment at all. Actually, God is predicting a result. He's describing the mechanism of the human condition, the mechanism of human nature. He's trying to explain the tragic ramifications of behaviors, of attitudes, of perspectives that we become accustomed to. You're crying tonight in vain, but that is what will cause you to cry for generations, not as a punishment. I'm explaining to you why your crying in vain is so painful and unnecessary. Not only because it's unnecessary, but it's painful. Why? Why were the Jews weeping that night? Why did they weep a whole night? Why was there a mass hysteria? What happened? What was the issue? They have been through very difficult situations, these people. These were not spoiled people who grew up in endless prosperity. They endured a horrific exile and subjugation in Egypt. Remember, this happens only one year after the anniversary of the exodus of Egypt. So these are the people who felt the beatings of the Egyptians on their flesh. They endured it. They experienced it. Why were they weeping? The answer is because they saw a hopeless and doomed future for themselves and their children. People can endure pain if there is a light at the end of the tunnel. If there is something positive, lefum tsaira agra, there will be some benefit, some reward. Here, they looked at their life, they have been through so much they have been promised redemption. It was unfolding beautifully. 
ten plagues, liberation, splitting of a sea, Matan Torah, a Mishkan was built, all good, all great, things are happening. And now finally, they're going to meet a cruel death as they try to enter into the promised land. When all promise will finally reach its moment of fulfillment, everything will be destroyed. All their children and their families will be destroyed. But let's understand something. Isn't there something very strange here? In all of history, it would be difficult to find a generation whose lives were more saturated with miracles than this generation. Egypt was the superpower of the time. It was the most powerful nation on earth, and it was forced, with both of its hands tied behind its back, to free this people, as a result of was, as we say in Chumash and in the Haggadah, Yad Chazaka and Zroya Netuya, so to speak, the strong hand and outstretched arm of Hashem. All of the ten plagues were supernatural, the exodus was supernatural, Kriyas Yamsuf was supernatural. For a sea to split, to let the people cross it, while Parai and all of his troops end up entering into the dried out sea only to be overwhelmed by the tsunami and drown, was not natural, it was all supernatural. In the desert itself, miracles, was the stu- miracles were the stuff of their daily lives. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner came from man, manna that came from heaven. Miriam's well, Be'erish al-Miriam, a rolling stone. That works. Which, uh, which produced water. I didn't think of it. Which produced water and provides water is miraculous. Clouds of glory that protect them and nurture them are also miraculous. Clouds that protect them from heat, from cold, from snakes, from scorpions in their path flattens their terrain as they march on through their long voyage in a midbar, as the Pasuk says, filled with scorpions and snakes and thirst and no water and no food. All of this is beyond the ordinary. Above all, this is a nation that witnessed the only time in history, never before and ever after, the revelation of God himself. It was the only generations without atheists. Rabble-rousers, but no atheists. Nobody ever told Moshe that he invented the Jewish religion. They told him other things. You gave your brother a good job. You have ulterior motives. But nobody ever told him that he's a false prophet. Which should have been the first thing. You made up this whole thing. Nobody could argue it. And the reason is this was the only generation in Jewish history, or in history, before or after, who would witness the Creator Himself every single member, every man, every woman, and every child. For these people to doubt God's ability to conquer the mighty inhabitants of the land of Canaan seems not only a problem of faith, it seems ludicrous. It seems absurd. For them, the divine reality was literally their daily breakfast. When these spies got up and said, we will never be able to settle the land. They're going to eat us up alive. The giants will destroy us. They're more powerful than God, they said. And you would ask them around and you would say, one second. A minute ago, as you were talking, you took a drink of water. 
Where did you get this water from? Say, oh, we have it here, the rolling stone. Really, how did that happen? And by the way, what do you eat for dinner before you're driving, before this whole speech? Oh, we have manna from where it comes down from heaven every morning. Really, how does that exactly happen? A year ago, you were in Mitzrayim. How'd you get out? How'd you get out? And the answer, of course, would be, again, beyond Teva. So this very people that witnessed all this, this is not a story that they heard from their Baba, or their Zayda, or their fathers, or their mothers. This is a, story, this is a year after Yitzhiya Mitzrayim. The story of the spies happened one year after the exodus of Egypt, a year and two months later. They left Mitzrayim, Tesvav, Nisan, the Miraglim was sent next year, they came back to Shabbat. That's a year and a few months after the exodus. For them to say, we cannot go up against these people, for they are mightier than us and mightier than Hashem, seems illogical. It seems irrational. But this teaches us something about the power of fear. This is exactly what fear looks like. It's not always rational. It proves to be more powerful than all your previous success stories. From a rational and empirical point of view, the fear may be baseless, but it does not prevent dread from paralyzing people. You can sit with a person in fear, explain to them scientifically, rationally, give reference points, talk about their own past. You would hope that the fear is gone, the fear is eradicated. But it's not always the case. Sometimes fear is so powerful it can freeze a person in their tracks despite all rational calculations and explanations otherwise. Or, as the famous expression, who was it, Roosevelt? Or his wife, Eleanor? We have nothing to fear but fear itself. There's nothing to fear. But fear is what you have to fear. And this is what happened to the people, send them my regards after you shut up. And this is what happened to the people on that face, faithful day on the 9th of Av. I once read a, a story about uh, this fellow. He was a real pessimist. A real pessimist. Everything was always going bad and it's going to get worse. They say the difference between an optimist and a pessimist is... The optimist says, it could still get worse. The pessimist says, no, it can't get worse. Or you could do it the other way if you want. But this was how a pessimist explained the difference between an optimist and a pessimist. Anyway, this fellow was a real pessimist. And he was in the, he was in the business of, uh, he would export food. He worked for a company that would transport and export food. And so once, he had to load a train that was traveling far, was traveling to Vancouver for many, many hours, a train with a refrigerator, a huge refrigerator cabin where uh, he would send dairy, whether it was cheese or butter or ice cream and so forth, a freezer train or refrigerator train, and he uploads the food into the refrigerated cabin, and uh, he's about to go out, but the doors close on him, and he is in the train. And in his mind, he's in the refrigerator, and he's going to be in the refrigerator for the next 48 hours. There's no cell phone. He's stuck. He's banging on the door. Nobody can hear him. The train is moving. There's nobody there. 
He is there for the next 48 hours. So, 48 hours in a refrigerator warrants a final will and testament. He finds a piece of cardboard, he takes out a pen, and he writes his final message to his family, to his wife. And he says, I always knew that I'm going to die in a similar fashion. It just worked so well for my life to end up dying at a frostbite being frozen in a refrigerator on a train trying to upload cheese to get to Vancouver. And he writes in his will what a miserable and horrible, horrible life he had and it was the worst life ever and this is just a natural epilogue for uh, his cursed life. Train arrives to Vancouver, the doors open, and the ones who come to uh, take out the food open up the doors open, and they see this man on the floor, unconscious. They immediately rush him to the hospital. They can't figure out why he's unconscious, because the refrigerator was off. But this describes the human condition so acutely. He decided that the future will be cursed and that became the mindset that defined the reality. Somebody once told me a line. He said, if you believe you can or you believe you can't, you're right. If you believe you can't, you're right. You can't. You're right. You won't be able to. If you believe you can, you're also right. Objective reality in so many instances is absolutely determined or at least heavily influenced by the person's energy that they bring into the reality. We used to think this is pop psychology. It's cute stuff that a grandmother or a therapist or a nice rabbi will tell people in order to, you know, anyway, going to end up in misery. Why not at least think it's going to be good? There's the famous line of the Tzemach Tzedek who told one of his disciples, Tracht gut, wird sein gut. Think positive and it will be positive. But what does that really mean? Why? Either it's going to be negative or it's going to be positive. How do my thoughts affect reality. Today, however, even in the world of science and physics, we know that there's an underlying consciousness at the core of reality. Reality, in its deepest place, is made up of letters. It's made up of energy. It's made up of thoughts. It's made up of words. And therefore, our own thoughts, our own observation, our own experience of reality affects reality. On a level of what's known as quantum mechanics, subatomic particles, your observation of the particles defines their behavior. It's pretty crazy stuff. But the fact is, I spoke about this Sunday at length in my share about the quantum eraser on the yeshiva.net. But the point is, it happens to be that there are certain parts, what's called subatomic particles, that behave in a certain way as long as you don't observe them. The moment you observe them, the moment you observe them, their behavior is transformed. This drives physicists crazy. It literally drives physicists crazy. Before you observe them, they behave in a paradoxical fashion with no problem. They move clockwise and counterclockwise simultaneously. We don't know how. 
they are both, they behave as particles, like marbles, and they also behave as waves. The moment you observe them, they collapse into one state, and they refuse to be who they are, because you observe them, you challenge them to collapse into the state that works according to your observation. Now this is, from a pure secular point of view, the language in modern physics. The observer completely defines the reality. They used to ask a question. If a tree falls in the forest and nobody is there, does it still make a sound, right? It's like somebody once asked me a different type of question. He said, if I, a guy asked me if I have an opinion in the forest and my wife is not there, am I still wrong? I told him, you're a moron because why would you think you're right? He said, because my wife didn't hear what I had to say. I said, you think she doesn't know your opinion just because she's not in the forest? She smells what you want to say. It's fine. So therefore, you're automatically wrong. But I don't know if that works in, with, works with quantum mechanics. That's a different uh, genre of conversation. But uh, does, this, does, does the tree make a sound? And of course, it's like, isn't it a foolish question? Of course the tree makes a sound. But today we know, of course not. The tree does not make a sound if it falls in the forest and you're not there. The definition of a sound is the way your ears experience the fall of the branch or the fall of the tree. In other words, it's always a marriage between the objective reality and my, a bit, my perception of the reality. The faculties within my physiological system that absorb this reality and interpret it in a particular way. Physicists today love saying this statement. I know it's going to sound very strange, but they say it constantly. They say it, and that is, some of the biggest physicists will say, the moment you leave your house, your house disappears. It's non-existent. Unless you left your teenager there. <laughs> then your house continues to exist in their mind. Now you'll say, what do you mean your house doesn't exist? This is like ludicrous statements. I'm still paying electricity bills when I'm not there. <laughs> Why doesn't the electricity company and the gas company and the bank and the IRS know that my house doesn't exist when I'm not there? Okay, of course, on some level we all understand. What they mean, however, is all of existence is a marriage between reality and my perception of reality. The house exists because we perceive that the house exists. That is the definition. Now, we happen to live in that world where we perceive certain things a certain way. So when he says, Tracht gut wird sein gut, this is a very profound idea in science, in physics, in theology, in philosophy, in Kabbalah, in Torah, in Chassidus, in Amuna. It's a profound idea about the nature of reality. Reality is deeper than we imagine, but our thoughts are much deeper than we can ever imagine. We are much deeper than we can ever imagine. So therefore, whether you believe you can or you believe you can't, you're right. So what happened to the people on that fateful night of Tisha B'Av? All compelling evidence said that they can enter into the land. The ruler of the world, Hashem, instructed them to enter the land. But they were overtaken by titanic fear. I guess that works too. They concluded that their future was bleak. It was cruel. 
They were powerless. And when I really believe I'm powerless, you can prove to me that yesterday I had tremendous success, but I become paralyzed. They were crying in vain. When they were crying in vain, Hashem said, you're going to cry for generations, not as a punishment. But let me explain to you what happens when people cry in vain. You wept in vain because you don't appreciate who you are. You don't appreciate your power. You don't appreciate that you're an ambassador of God. You don't appreciate that you're a prince of infinity. You don't appreciate that you were sent on a mission to conquer your promised land and settle it. And if you're an ambassador of the creator of the world who's limitless, you assume that limitlessness. Or as the Gemara puts it in Kedushin, Shluchai shal Adam Kemaisai. The messenger of a person assumes the status of the one who sent him. In this case, if the soul was sent as a shliach or shlucha of the master of the world, the soul has the qualities, the infinite characteristics of the one who sent it. But now I am overtaken by fear. A demonic thought entered into my psyche that says, I can't, I'm weak, I'm nerdy, I'm a loser, I'm a victim, I'm so frail. There's no hope for me. There's no future for me. What do I do as a result of that? I actually snuff. I take the soul out of me. I take the vitality out of me. I lose touch with my own true infinity, with my own true power. So what happens is, when these, when these people can't appreciate that God was with them, He's with them, and He has given them the power to confront their challenges, to overcome their obstacles. When you lose sight of your inner spiritual, emotional, and psychological power, you indeed become a victim. You indeed become vulnerable. I indeed become extremely weak. When I really believe I can't, indeed, I really can't. My whole attitude completely redefines my reality. And then I start crying for real. I read recently a very interesting uh, experiment. I read this in Psychology Today. Somebody sent me, it was an experiment conducted by a Harvard psychologist whose name is Dr. Robert Rosenthal. And uh, Dr. Rosenthal conducted this experiment on a group of students and teachers living in Yerushalayim, living in Jerusalem, of all places, it's interesting. This Harvard professor chose Jerusalem. And the experiment went as follows. He had a group of physical education teachers and students randomly chosen and randomly divided into three groups. So he takes a group of physical education teachers and students and, and he divides them just randomly into three groups. In the first group, the teachers were told that previous testing indicated that all the students had an average ability in athletics and average potential. Remember, these were teachers of physical, athletic stuff, physical education. The teachers said, we tested, we tested the students, basically average ability in athletics, average potential. The teachers were told, now go and work with them, go and train them. The second group of teachers 
were told that the students in their group also had been tested previously, and they exhibited an unusually high potential for excellence in athletics. They told the teachers, go work with them, go train them. Then you had a third group of teachers, and they were told that this group of students had also been tested previously, and they exhibited an extremely low potential for athletic training. Everything in their body is pointing pointing downwards. They're clumsy. Their motor skills are compromised. They don't have enough iron. They don't have this vitamin, yenna vitamin, that vitamin. They're just real loyotzlichniks. They're good for couch potatoes. They could sit on a couch and sit by a kiddush and not move. Three groups. Everybody was tested with different results. The teachers were given several weeks to work with and interact with their students athletically. Train them, work with them, do sports with them, exercise with them, and so forth. At the end of the training period, it's interesting, the results were the same for male and female students, for male and female teachers. All of the students who have been randomly identified as being rather average, I'm reading now, average in ability, performed average on the tests. All the students who were randomly identified as being above average performed above average. All the students who were randomly identified as below average performed below the average by a considerable margin. But no testing ever happened. The whole thing was a bilbo. It was a delusion. It didn't exist. The results of the test showed him. As he puts it, Dr. Rosenthal puts it, what the teachers thought their students' ability was, and what the students themselves thought their ability was, went a long way towards deciding just how well they performed as athletes. What was so special about this experiment? You're dealing here not with the psyche alone. You're dealing here with athletics. You're dealing here with a very tangible, empirical, physical arena. Athletics is not only minds in the game, it's not only attitudes. Some people just play basketball different than other people. Some people can run, some people can bike, some people run marathons, and some people sit by bar mitzvahs, by the Viennese tables. It's just, we all know this is not just a mind game. There are different types of bodies and different types of dispositions. So what psychologists claim to be true in the emotional arena or the psychological arena, suddenly emerged so powerfully in the physical arena. The concept of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So basically you have students in classrooms, workers in shops, patients in therapy, or athletes on the field. All do better. And what makes them do better? When the person in charge expects of them to do well. When they themselves expect of themselves to do well. They see it in their potential. They see it in their horizon. They see it in their vision. One's own self-esteem. One's own self-image. What someone thinks of himself or herself, what I'm capable of, what I'm not capable of, is a crucial factor, not only in you having a better night's sleep, but actually predicting how things are going to emerge in a person's life. How I actually live, what I actually make of myself. Which brings us to the next step. And that is, why 
was it the ninth day of Av? This day, from all days, Tishabov, the ninth day of Av. And it's a conclusion of a period known as nine days. Tisha Sayyamun. The nine days. Rishchidosh Av is the first day of the nine days. And as we know that the end is the nine days is Tisha B'av, and they have a special status in Halacha. It's things we do all year that we don't do in the nine days. The nine days has a special status in Halacha. Is this number just chosen randomly? You start with the beginning of the month and you go nine. The truth is that every soul consists of ten koiches, ten faculties. Chachma, Bina, Das, Chesed, Gvurit, Eris, Netzach, Hoid, Yisoid, and Malchus. Number ten is Malchus. Chachma is conception. The lightening moment, inspiration. Bina is comprehension. Das is application. Chesed is the ability to love, give. Gvura is discipline, the ability to discipline, hold back. Tiferis is empathy, beauty, empathy. Netzach is victory, the ability to win. Hoid is perseverance, consistency. <coughs> also surrender, hoida'a, surrender, submission, acquiescence, humility. Yisoid is communicativity, bonding. And then there's number 10. Number 10 is malchus. Kingdom, royalty. Every soul has 10 fuses, 10 lights. These are the 10 building blocks of the soul. Every thought, word, or behavior of yours is a child of one or a combination of one of these factors. It's either your chesed or your gvuri, teferis or your netzach, your hoid or your soy, your kachma, your bina, your das, or your malchus, or a combination of a few. Each one can be employed constructively, each one can be employed destructively. You have chesed that is awesomely promising and loving, lovely, and you have chesed that can deteriorate, that can destroy, can undermine. The same is true with every other one. Empathy could be one of the most powerful tools of emotional bonding and one of the most powerful tools of manipulation, etc. Then we come to number 10. Number 10 is Malchus. What is Malchus? Malchus is aristocracy, kingship, royalty. What is that in the soul? It's basically a profound sense of internal dignity, a sense of Malchus. I am a king, I'm a prince, I'm a princess, I'm a queen. It's a sense of majesty that stems from where? Where do you get this from? Where does one get their midah of malchus from? Some people need to get it from controlling other people because they don't have it within themselves. The less I have it, the more I need it from other people. That's where I get my malchus from. A lot of control freaks, a lot of narcissists, a lot of arrogant people are really so humble to a fault. They feel themselves as such nothingness. As they feel themselves as... That didn't work. They feel themselves as so worthless, as so valueless, that the void of internal emptiness is infinite. It's like a bottomless pit. You know, you pour, you pour, you pour, and it just always goes out. The more compliments you get, the more you need it, because there's just nothing there. There's nothing there internally. What is real Malchus? What is healthy Malchus? Malchus comes from the fact that deep down, a soul that is in touch with truth knows that it matters. It matters. Those words seem delusionally simple. They're not. 
Do you really, really deep down believe that you matter? Do you really believe that your dignity is unwavering and uncompromised? Do you really believe that you truly exist? Now you'll ask me, who doesn't believe that they exist? Plenty of people. We exist, but here's the question. Is my existence a distraction of my feeling that I don't really exist? Or is my existence an expression of genuine existence? Two lives, they're both living, but it's completely two different lives. One is trying to distract themselves from the feeling that they don't really exist. And one is actually living existence. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Because if I would be sitting with men, I would have to do this for another two hours and explain myself. Okay. It's very clear? Is it too clear? So here we come to a mission in Perkyavas. The Mishnah says, The kavo, the glory, the respect of your friend should be as precious to you as your own covenant. And then he says, The fear of your Rebbe should be like the fear of heaven. Now, both of these statements and particularly others that is learned in the spring and many kahilas in the summer are difficult to understand. The same Perkyavas says, Hakina Hataiva People who live with jealousy, with addiction, with cravings, and with the need for people to honor them, they're not really alive. It's very distracting. It takes them out of the world. Here the Mishnah says, the covet of your friend should be as beloved as your own covet. Your covet is beloved to you, that's how you should see the covet of your friend. But the Mishnah Prakayavis says you should transcend even the need of your own covet. So the Magad of Mizrich gives the following interpretation. He says, We misread the Mishnah. We think the Mishnah means the covet of your friend should be as precious as your own covet, which does mean on a literal level. In other words, you should respect somebody else like you would want respect. He says there's a much deeper interpretation. The cover that your friend gives you, the cover of your friend should be as precious as yours, means something else. I'll give an example from my own life. I lecture a lot. Sometimes people listen. Sometimes people sleep. Sometimes people listen. Sometimes people text. At the end, sometimes people applaud. And sometimes people say, thank God it's over. Once in a while, there could be a standing ovation, which is very unique for a Jewish crowd. Non-Jewish crowd happens often. Jewish crowds usually shkoyach. Shkoyach, shkoyach. That's the best you'll get. Shkoyach. Sometimes someone will say, not bad. Not bad. Which is a very, very loaded compliment for Jews. Jews have a hard time really expressing gratitude and compliments. Shkoyach is a beautiful, safe word. It's not vulnerable, doesn't mean anything. Shkoyach, 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 shkoyach. So. It's just the way it is, right? So now, assume I finish a lecture, and no applause, no standing ovation. So I go home, and I'm feeling empty. Spoke for an hour, hour and a half, two hours, too long, too short, usually too long. Feeling empty. And then I say, you know what? The whole thing. And the MC was also horrible. He didn't even know how to introduce me. He mamish didn't know. And you know what? We're going to redo this in my bedroom. I'll introduce myself. I introduce myself, it takes seven, eight minutes. 
I read it off a bio. I explain even more background because I know it. I give the speech again. And then I jump up and I give myself a standing ovation for 12 minutes. Maybe one of the longest in history. Nobody gets for 12 minutes. Maybe Fidel Castro or uh, Stalin, you know, dictators used to get it because if not, you end up in the gulag. But uh, who, gets, who gets in America standing ovation for 12 minutes? So you do understand, whatever my insecurities are, which I'm not going to analyze at this very moment, it won't really do anything for me. Why won't it do anything for me? Because it's meaningless. Giving yourself a standing ovation, I just tried, it really doesn't do anything. Others who give, it could do something. So the Maggid says this brilliant line, The kavod that other people give you should be exactly as valuable as the kavod you give yourself. should be exactly of the same value. You know why? It has the same meaninglessness. It's exactly the same meaninglessness. It means nothing. Nothing. You can tell what it means, nothing. It feels good. It feels good when I don't have my own malchus and my existence is a distraction of that pain. I'm not really attached to life. I'm not really attached to the core of life. So we have different numbers. We all have numbers. Did I just make up a word? But it works, no? Okay, tell Webster. Okay, I'll use numbing agents. Okay, wonderful. Numbing agents. Numbers. I like numbers. Not numbers. Numbers. With a B. I think numbers is also with a B, no? That's what they taught me in Brooklyn. A silent B. That's the problem. When you have a silent B, your being is silent. You don't feel that there is being. Okay. That was good? Okay. A little more validation in the front of it. So, I won't have to give myself a applause today. I'm so happy. I could cancel my therapy today. My applause, can I go eat too? When, when, when being is really eclipsed, I don't have it. Shakespeare says to be or not to be, that is the question. I would say to be or to be not, that is the question. And when the person's absence of existence, absence of being, is so present, it creates the need for the number in order to be able to avoid that pain. So the Maggid says, what are you looking for in that covet? Compliments don't create you, and criticism doesn't destroy you, but they work together. When compliments create me, criticism destroys me. Because my life is defined by your validation of it or lack of validation of it. Some of us are unaware of this, but we live our whole life in that pattern. It's so instinctive. It's so unconscious. It's so natural. We don't even realize we're doing it because we had to make that decision so many years ago. But suddenly you wake up one day and you become aware when you start using the muscle of awareness and you start... You familiar with that muscle, anybody? You can't always get it in the gym. 
But when you start exercising the muscle of awareness, you become a real, real, you ask yourself the question, what is Kvayt Chavercha doing to me? Which continues, Yehi Moira Rabach Kamoira Shamayim. The fear of your Rebbe should be like the fear of God. What does that mean? What if your Rebbe ain't God? With all due respect. The fear of your Rebbe should be like the fear of heaven. So here's what the Baal Shem Tov says. Yehi Moira Rabach Kamoira Shamayim is not a construction. It's a prediction. You will fear your Rebbe as much as he fears God. My fear of God will be reflected in other people's relationship to me. Commensurate with his own year of Shemayim is how much I will experience real year from him. If he's just a control freak, never mind a crook, or just a clueless whatever, that will express itself in one level of Meir. Unless you're just a brainwashed, indoctrinated cult member. But if his yira of Shamayim is very real, is very profound, then your Meirah Rabbach will always be a reflection of his Meirah Shamayim. Always. And you see it. You see it throughout all of history. If you don't see it today, you'll see it tomorrow. If not tomorrow, you see it in a year. Everything comes out, especially in this generation. Everything comes out. The wall-to-wall carpets are getting smaller and smaller, where everything has been hidden for like a few thousand years. So, Based on his moira of Shemaim is our moira from him. So now we come to this concept of malchus. What is really malchus? It's the malchus's the sense of unshakable dignity. That is the quality that every soul deserves. Every soul has it. Every soul has it innately. But some of us Fell, feel we lost it as a result of various things we heard or we experienced growing up, which proved to us consciously that not only are we not kings or queens or princesses, we're not even shmatas. We are less than doormats. I met a young man yeah, a few days ago. and He told me the story of his life, a very painful story. I'm not going to elaborate on the story right now. I just want to tell you his psychological his, I explained to him, why do you think you did all of this? And he says, I'm going to say this very, very briefly, you should bring out the point. He was molested as a child by four different people, including a sibling, a brother-in-law, a guest that his parents brought into the house, and the Gabay in Shul. Okay? And they did this from the age of six to the age of 13. Four people. Four people from the age of six to the age of 13. I know some people sitting are uncomfortable when I speak about this, but not to speak about this is a crime against humanity. So that's why anybody who knows about this is not allowed to not speak about this. One has to speak about this again and again and again for awareness. If not, it's loisamoid aldam reyacha. Like if I would know somebody has a gun in your child's school, and I wouldn't want to talk about it at a sheer to make, not to make people uncomfortable. So he tells me, now he's in his 30s, how his life played out after that. Smart person, deep, sensitive, spiritual, talented, handsome, skilled, athletic, good, a real, uh, what's the word? A geschickte mensch, a tichtike. What do you guys say? A toigliche, really, really efficient, but completely destroyed, can't do anything. So I asked him, why did it play itself out in the way? He told me different things he got involved in. And he said, very simple. 
my psyche tells me every morning that for me to have value in the world, I have to basically be raped. That is my value. By me being used, abused, that is my purpose. I say, but that's ludicrous. He says, you're talking here. This is my existence. I said, but do you understand that I'm right? He says, yes, but it doesn't matter. This is my experience. It's in his bones. That is a person that can't experience his malchus. Can't experience. How does one get that back? How does one get that restored? The sense of I matter, not in an arrogant way. I matter because God, the day of birth, the day of birth, I once heard from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the day of birth is the day that God decided that this world cannot be without you. That's the definition of birth. That's how you have to look at the day of birth. Other people look at the day of birth and say, Nebach. Nebach. Why did this ever happen? Why was the world cursed with me? Other people look at their day of birth, they just get drunk. But this is the real concept of Malchus. Malchus you don't have to buy. Malchus you don't have to deserve. You don't have to get good grades in school to have Malchus. Chas v'shalom. You don't have to be of a certain shape or design or character to get Malchus. It's an inherent characteristic of the soul. It's the feeling that there's something uniquely special about your life. You're indispensable to creation. The Gemara says, Every person is obliged to say the world was created for me. Now imagine everyone here gets up right now and says the world was created for me. What does that sound like? You were created for me. You were created for me. You were created for me. Sounds like a real crazy narcissist. NPD, narcissistic personality disorder. They say, how do you drown a narcissist? You put mirrors on the bottom of the ocean. Somebody told me about somebody else. That he's a self-made man and he worships his creator. What do you mean? My real name is not Jacobson. We come from Georgia, South Russia. So our name was Yakub Ashvili. My grandparents got out. They escaped Stalin by falsifying passports. After the Second World War, Stalin allowed Polish immigrants to leave Russia. So we changed the name. So my name, real name is Yakub Ashvili. You, should just, you could say that Rabbi Yakub Ashvili if you want. So, Yaakov uh, means the son of Jacob. So there was a guy in Shul where I grew up, and he, he, he didn't like me too much, for whatever reason. So uh, whenever he would see me, he would say, you know why your name is Shvili? Because your philosophy is, Bishvili nivra the whole world was created for me. Shvili, Shvili, Shvili. What do what, what Chazal mean with this? What they, this is not an arrogant statement. It's actually a very humble statement. Bishvili nivra means... There's something at stake in the world that I have to complete. For me, the world was created. There's something only I can do in this world. Nobody before me, nobody after me will ever be able to do it. Not because there were no great people. Even Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Moshe, Aaron, great, unbelievable people. But this is something that your soul can do. Nobody else can do it. And in that sense, everything, everybody's waiting for you. Everybody is waiting for you because this contribution, this gift, this energy, this presence that you bring into the world, nobody before and nobody after can bring it. 
They say the story that Mozart once conducted a symphony in Austria. So the emperor came. His name was Emperor Joseph II. He was a little tone deaf. You know what tone deaf people do at symphonies? They sleep. They do what Jews do in shul. They sleep. So Emperor Joseph II slept through the symphony. The symphony finishes and Mozart goes by. And uh, you know when people who are clueless start criticizing? So Emperor Joseph II says, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, job well done, but too many notes. Too many notes. You know when a great expert who knows nothing about what you're doing starts telling you how to do things. But too many notes. So what was Mozart supposed to tell the emperor? You know about music. You know about music less than my cat knows about music. If I would bring my horse into the symphony, he would appreciate it more than you did. If he would say that, he could come out with a head shorter. He would tell the emperor, why don't you stick to your business and let me do my business? He couldn't say any of this. So how do you respond to an emperor who slept through your symphony, understands in your genius, less than, as they used to say in Yiddish, a katz in the Levana, and Dach tells you too many notes. So he says, yes, your majesty, which one do you suppose I cut? Which one do you suppose I cut? Of course, it was his way of saying, the writer of the music knows that each note is indispensable. You come to a mother who has a bunch of children, you say, you know, too many notes. Which one do you suppose I cut? That is how a principal, how a teacher should look at children, at students. That's how true leaders of the Jewish people look at Klal Yisrael. Which note do you suppose I cut? How is it that you make a selection this one is worthy, this one is unworthy. This one is good, this one is bad. This one is going to make it, this one is a loser. Tell God, ask, tell him which note he should cut. Tell him, which note do you suppose I cut? Who defines which note is indispensable to the divine symphony and which note is just superfluous? You're just a burden on the cloud. All you create for us, problems. This only comes from the ignorance, from the cluelessness of the person who's not sensitive to music. The person who understands nothing of the perspective of the writer, the conductor, and the director. That is the concept of Bishvili Nivra Ayla. Hashem tells Moshe Rabbeinu by Matan Torah, Come up on the mountain, and nobody should come up with you on the mountain. Alone on the mountain. So the Degel Machina Ephraim, the grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, says, everyone climbs on the mountain, and when you're on the mountain, you have to understand that you're alone on the mountain. There's something on the mountain that nobody else could share. Only you. You're alone on the mountain in your relationship with history, in your relationship with God, in your relationship with truth. This is what Malchus represents in the soul. The idea that I have a soul that is absolutely sacred and divine, its inner value cannot be compromised. It's when I say in the morning, Tahira means my soul is pure. In Aramaic, in Zoyar, Tahira means light. My soul is light, it's bright. 
It's luminescent. It's a ray of infinity. It's a ray of the divine. Nothing can extinguish that flame. Nothing can destroy that light. What is at the root of all self-destruction? At the root of all self-destruction is the destruction of your own malchus. When my malchus is destroyed, when my dignity is violated physically, emotionally, psychologically, or spiritually, I am left only with nine days. I am left only with nine qualities. Those nine qualities are big. Chachma, Bina, Daz, Chesed, I'm looking at a person. She's talented. She's brilliant. She's beautiful inside and outside. She's skilled. She's extraordinary. But there's only nine days. There's no ten. Because the dignity has been violated, has been destroyed in her own consciousness or in his own consciousness, lacking our inner unwavering sense of dignity and worth. When that part of you, that part of you, that part that feeds your sense of self-value is compromised, it's just a matter of time before one's life begins spiraling downward and sometimes loss of complete control in one form or another. But there is that day when their dignity was destroyed. There is that day. It's not the end, but it's the beginning of the end. Their sense of dignity, of inner majesty has been destroyed. If the malchus is maintained, other nine faculties are lacking, it's a completely different story. So sometimes you look at a person like everything should be going right for them. Everything is working. Much more than many other people. It's like, wow! Because we don't see how that tenth invisible core is God. There's no core. Mamish, no core. It's fascinating in the sense of how tragic the lack of malchus can be. And what it takes on is so many different experiences. Some people become numerous forever. They just know. Others can't live in denial, so they become dysfunctional. You see, those of us who learn how to numb, we think that we're better off. We're not, we just know how to lie. But people who are more spiritual can't lie. So they numb and 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 they go crazy from it. And somehow they have to emerge. In their honesty, all of their dysfunction emerges. Not because they're worse off, because they're more honest. It's much more painful to observe for us. But it's really, they're spitting out what is happening on their core. So there are people who become addicts. There are people who are creative enough to what we call them functional addicts. There are people who cover all their tracks. But whatever the situation is, we use various creative or non-creative methods to deal with this. So a person can have plenty of wisdom, understanding, knowledge, love, discipline, empathy, endurance, humility, bonding. I just said the first nine faculties, but they're only nine. The ninth day of Av. They're missing number ten. Hasiri Yekaidish. Without the tenth dimension, we're missing the foundation of life. Inner security, inner self-worth, inner dignity that makes all the other nine, it gives them their weight. It imbues us with the confidence to use the other nine faculties with conviction, with a sense of urgency, with a sense of destiny. So Tisha B'Av exists on a collective level, 
it also exists on an individual level. The loss of malchus, the loss of royalty, of majesty, liberty. It's the confusion and the depression created over the sense that God is not here. He's not in me. He's not with me. He abandoned me. I'm a loner. I'm lost. I'm nothing. I'm valueless. I'm insignificant. When the miraculous managed to instill that fear in people, which is what fear does to people, then we become lost in the big jungle. When we're lost in the big jungle, we really are in the mercy of the people over us. Of the people over us. You cried tears in vain. It was unfounded. You have all the strength you need. And when you believe you don't have the strength you need, which is why you're crying in vain, because it's not true, you won't have the strength you need. You will become paralyzed. You will not know how to confront reality. You will remain stuck. You will not be able to deal with life. And all that can produce is powerful tears. I once read this very interesting... Tell you about all these experiments I read, but they're very meaningful. They used to have in Europe a crazy type of circus. It's not really such a nice circus to talk about, but they used to do it. It's a fact. Men and women and children would go entertainment. They're called flea. You ever heard of them? Flea circuses. Little bugs. Basically, the guy who owned the circus needed money. He had to feed all these bugs. He fed them with his own blood 30 times a day. They would just buy it. And he would have them do races. On his hands, on his arms, on his stomach, on his feet. They would schlep little, little paper carriages or cardboard carriages. And these bugs would race and mosquitoes and fleas would race each other. And people would come and they they did it for many years. It stopped, stopped, I think, in the 1940s. Part of it, it was pretty grotesque that he had to feed them with his own blood 30 times a day. It wasn't a very aesthetical circus, let's put it that way. Now they even closed down the Ringling Brothers, I see because of how they're treating the animals. Even that became non-aesthetical. I don't know what people are going to do, chalamoyet. I guess they'll have to play on the iPhones. That's going to be a wonderful replacement, a wonderful replacement. So, uh, so I, stupid me, I had a question. If I was a bug on your hand, I would fly away. I am not obligated to be part of your circus because you want to make a couple of dollars. Bugs fly away. How does he keep them in the race? I'll go to Shailen, eh? Good question. So I researched it a little bit. <laughs> it didn't take me long, but I researched it. And then I found out. You know what they used to do? Listen to this. They take the bugs. They put them in a glass box. Okay. There's a lid on the top, and what does the bug do? Tries to fly out, bumps its head. It hurts. You try flying into a glass lid, it hurts, right? They get headaches. There's no Tylenol. They get headaches. The headaches become migraines. After hundreds and thousands of times of doing that, the bugs say, you know what? Maybe we shouldn't fly so high. And they still fly but they figure out to stop right under the lid so they don't hurt their heads. Instead, they go right, they go left, they go up. Let's say the lid is 10 inches high. They will fly 9 and change, but not 10. You know what happens next? You take them out of the box, and these bugs will never fly higher than 10 inches. 
even though there's nothing above their head. They are prisoners of their own beliefs. They're not prisoners anymore. The sky is the limit, literally. But they won't fly anymore. Because their own belief system is telling them, you're not allowed to fly. You can't fly. You're going to be hurt. So they remain trapped for life, not by any outside circumstances, but by the internal belief that I can't fly further. I read this, I stopped, and I said, this is true about bugs? It's only true about bugs? How many people, how many kids, every kid wants to fly? Every kid wants to fly. Every person wants to fly. We want to soar. But we bumped our head. There was somebody who said, you're an idiot. You're a moron. Stop. What are you doing? Now we're adults. We're taken out of the box. But we'll never fly more further. We will forever remain below 10 inches. If I had to have a reminder of this, last week I was giving my morning shear, my daily morning shear, 5.30 in the morning to men. Some of your husbands are there. We learned 5.30 Gemara, 6.30 Halacha, 7 o'clock Mukutitari of the Balatanya. And in the middle of the Halacha shear, the Gemara shear, somebody who's been there a very long time asks a question with great trepidation. He says, yesterday you said, I said, that the mind is a gift that should be used. Is there a source for Judaism in that? I say, why? What do you think? He says, I was taught that using your mind is heretical. When you use your mind, it's a disaster. You don't use your mind. So I said, but when we learned, as always, you learn Gemara, it's full of questions and answers. How do you not use your mind? He says, I don't know. We don't ask questions. That itself I don't ask. So I say, is that why you never ask questions in this class? He says, yeah, because everybody asks. They don't stop asking. I say, did you ever ask a question? He says, yeah, once. He was eight years old in the classroom, and he asked the following question. I'll tell you exactly what the question was. Eight years old. He turned to his teacher. They were learning Parsha's boy. And Parsha's boy, Parai asked Moshe, Miva miahalchim, who's leaving Egypt? So Moshe said, I quote, with our youths and our elders, we will go. With our sons, our daughters, with our cattle and flock, we will go. And he asked his teacher, why does it say Nelech twice? It could have said, with our young and old, with our cattle, with our children, we will go. Why is there Nelech twice? He's saying this over with fear. I say, Nuan, what happened? So his teacher started to laugh. So what a stupid question. Who asks questions on the tire like this? So all the kids started to laugh. It became a circus. He says, for the next eight years, whenever... There was a stupid question in the class. It was called the Binaraini Biskanaini Nelech question. For eight years, this was the paradigm for stupidity. I say, what else happened? Did you ever ask, ever ask a question again? I never asked a question again in my life in learning, ever. So, one of the first times I'm asking a question. So, I spoke for the next 45 minutes about that.
and it was, I think, posted uh, yesterday on the yeshiva.net about uh, responding to questions. I'm just giving you the context of that shir. My response to that. I looked at him and I said, first of all, it's a good question. With all due respect to your teacher, it's a good question. Second of all, even if it was a foolish question, you never compromise the dignity of a person who asks the question. Besides, it was a good question. And then I take a look, the clay yucker asks the question. <laughs> the clay yucker asks the question. I emailed him and I said, the clay yucker, who's considered one of the most prominent mafarshim printed in every Chumash Mikroyz Doilis, asks the question. He writes back to me, you just took a stone off my heart 32 years later. I thought I was essentially stupid. It was essentially stupid. It seems like such an insignificant story. But what a story. How a person lives with results. You're out of the box. But you can't fly higher than 10 inches. So there was a young man in the shir who heard this and he came over to me after. He's an 18-year-old boy in yeshiva. And he tells me, I want to tell you something that happened to me. He learns in Degel And he was in second grade. And he asked a, a question. And he tells me, he tells me, Rabbi Jacobson, it was a stupid question. Because later I went home, I thought about it. It was a ridiculous question. And the teacher listened. And he said, wow, what a question. He picks me up. He says, come with me to the principal. I thought he's going to punish me. What did I do? Come to the principal. He says, such a question this boy has. Amazing. And he says over the question. He says, you hear what a mind he has. He says, I, I, I said, how did it make you feel? So I never stopped asking questions. I never stopped asking questions. And it made me feel very, very good. The difference of two people. And it happens to be that in the first case it was a good question. I keep on emphasizing it because it's comical. It's, it's, extra, it's extra tragic to me. Even if it was a stupid question, it's irrelevant really. It's completely irrelevant. Imagine this teacher instead of laughing from him. Would have, saying, would have said, I don't know the answer. It's a good question, I don't know the answer. Wow, I asked something my teacher doesn't know. And imagine if the teacher would go over with him to an older Jew, a Talmud Chacham, and say, I want to raise this question that he asked me. And that man would say, wow, I don't know. Just that. Instead, the opposite was done. This is learnt behavior that comes from a compromised core self. Therefore, when the Miraglin inculcated that fear in the Jewish people, they're crying hysterically. Our lives are over. There's no punishment here. You're crying tears in vain. When you cry tears in vain means you feel that you're powerless. You feel that you can't fly. Because when you tried once, you bumped your head. But there's no box over you. But I don't know that anymore. Internally, there's a voice. Don't fly. Don't do. Don't change. Don't accomplish. Don't be happy. Your marriage, your life, your destiny was meant to be an exercise in misery. That is the curse that comes from the baseless notion 
that the person is powerless. The tikkun, the rectification for that is the exact opposite notion. The notion that as shlucha shaladam kamaisai, as an ambassador of the creator of the world, you are a creator. You are a co-creator in the destiny of your life and in the destiny of the universe. Have a wonderful week. It is something that people do. That people, after they do a certain job, how do they know they did a good job? Through the compliments from other people. Right? That like validates your good work. Listen, there's nothing wrong getting a compliment. No, but you, you, we all like, you like sort of wait for it's it. It's nice when you finish to get a compliment. I mean, when your existence depends on it. You know what I mean? If I don't get a compliment, like for three days, I'm, I'm, I'm a zombie. That's what I mean. It's nice to get a compliment. That's also part of human nature. Yeah, that's part of human nature. When my existence becomes dependent on it. And the truth is, the more people are in touch with their own malchus, the less compliments mean to them. The compliment means something only in terms of productivity, constructive. Right, right, meaning, right. somebody tells me, by the way, uh, your tie, uh, you have to figure out how to make a tie. Or you said the English word, you mispronounced it. So that's constructive. A compliment in the sense that you could learn from it, feedback. Feedback. That's the That's value the of it. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking you create something. You... That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Feedback to know what you're accomplishing or not accomplishing and how you can fix it. To know it. that, I'm, that yeah. I am accomplishing. People who are very in touch with their own malchus need feedback, but they don't need a compliment to fill their void. It's a different thing. You got what I'm saying? It was very interesting. Two, the two people that they said were asking questions. I went to Beis Rachel, and I have a daughter that went to a Hasidish school. We both had the same question. My question was that when Rivka was at Akara, why were they yeah. followed? Yeah. I asked this for my teacher. Yeah. And I said, she was a three-year-old. Why were they followed for a three-year-old that she was yeah. not having children? Yeah. Was she physically... Yeah. Like a developed, or was she a three-year-old? Yeah. I got an answer. My daughter was sent out of class. You have a dirty mind. She was sent to the principal. Never again did she ask a question. You both asked she was three. Why were they misfollowed? Yeah. Which Rashi asks. Yeah. I was going to say. I got the answer. Rashi says I got they the waited answer. 10 they, years. They waited, they waited 10 years, right. She asked the question and they said she has a filthy answer. mind. Filthy why mind, is that a filthy okay? mind? She was a seventh grade. She's a 13-year-old. Why, why was that it a filthy, filthy mind? mind? Because you're, why was your head busy with such things? A three-year-old kid doesn't have a baby. What's no, the, so the answer why is that so it's really filthy? the person who you asked the question. So she has a filthy mind. Right, exactly. But then they transpose it and project it onto you and destroy your life. So she was thrown out for this question. And she never asked a question. Never again. And she's a brilliant person. But never again did she ask. Just interesting. Mother and daughter, same question. I got a satisfactory answer. Wow. She was unbelievable. Amazing. No, but the whole of the whole of Torah is all questions. What? won't undo that. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.